I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, an artist and psychoanalyst based in Sweden who works with people internationally, and this is episode 282 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. My guest today is Professor Callum Neal, Professor of Psychoanalysis and Continental Philosophy and University Head of Research at Edinburgh Napier University. He's also the director of Lacan in Scotland. You can follow Lacan in Scotland on social media at Lacan in Scotland at Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe to their YouTube channel where they post recordings of their events. They're having an event coming up soon in March to celebrate the fourth and final book in the series on reading Lacan's Ecree, edited by Dr. Callum Neal, Dr. Eric Cook, and Dr. Stein Van Hule. So be sure to check that out. Callum has also authored books including his newest, Jacques Lacan, The Basics, as well as Without Ground, Lacanian Ethics and the Assumption of Subjectivity, and Ethics and Psychology Beyond Codes of Practice. He's also the editor of Lacanian Perspectives on Blade Runner 2049. Rendering Unconscious was recently awarded the Gradiva Award for Digital Media from the National Association for the Advancement of Psychoanalysis. Huge thanks to all the guests, listeners, and fans of Rendering Unconscious over the years. Rendering Unconscious has just celebrated six years, so thank you all very much. If you enjoy the podcast and what I do, and you don't already subscribe to our Patreon, please consider subscribing at patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. Your support is hugely appreciated, and everyone's support makes a huge difference. I do everything for rendering unconscious myself, the booking, the editing, the interviews, running the website, running this podcast stream, and I don't receive any funding or grants from any outside sources, and I don't accept advertising. And I want to keep the podcast as a free resource to everyone, and the support of our Patreon community really helps me to do that. So please consider subscribing. You can subscribe for as little as $2 a month, and it really makes a huge difference. So thank you. I've also started a Substack for people who prefer that format where we post exclusive content every week, the same exclusive content that's posted weekly at Patreon, except the Patreon has a lot more to offer um, and also has a Discord server where you can chat with one another as well as with Carl and I on an ongoing basis. The Substack, if you prefer that platform, is vanessa23carl.substack.com. I've also added a button for PayPal if you prefer to make a one-time or ongoing donation through PayPal. Links to everything can be found in the show notes accompanying this episode and at the main website, renderingunconscious.org. You can follow Rendering Unconscious on Instagram at Rendering Unconscious, and you can follow me at Instagram and Twitter at Rawson underscore, that's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore, at Instagram and Twitter, and Dr. Vanessa Sinclair 23 at TikTok. 
Coming up this Sunday, February 18th, we have a very special event. My husband, author Carl Abrahamson, will be discussing his book, The Devil's Footprint. The premise of this book is, God proposes the challenge of the millennium. If Satan sorts out the ever-growing human mess on earth, God will lovingly take him back to heaven as his favorite archangel. Satan accepts and sets out on a massive operation to balance out overpopulation, pollution, corruption, and other severely satanic headaches, many of which he originally helped create. Easier said than done. Join author Carl Abrahamson as he takes the audience on a cosmic journey in his swashbuckling apocalyptic novel. Beginning with a tale as old as time, Abrahamson brings God, Lucifer, Galatea, and the Archangels to life as they run into characters such as Ambrose Bierce, Niccolo Machiavelli, and some carefree Russian oligarchs. It's not easy being evil in a world that's gone to hell. So join us this Sunday, February 18th at Morbid Anatomy Online. The event starts at 1 p.m. New York City time, which is 7 p.m. here in Sweden, Central European time, and 6 p.m. in the UK. Links to this can be found in the show notes accompanying this episode, as well as at morbidanatomy.org slash events and psychartcult.org. Also, I'll mention my brand new novel, Things Happen, was mentioned in this episode. Um, Callum and I discuss it a bit. If you'd like to check out my book, you can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net forward slash books. Of course, the link till things happen is also included in the show notes for this episode. And because of the uh, suggestion of one of our Rendering Unconscious listeners, I have joined the Amazon Affiliates program. So if you're going to order my books, Callum's books, Carl's books, or any other books that you hear about on Rendering Unconscious podcast, why not head to the show notes for that episode and click on the link there. If you're going to buy it from Amazon anyway, because you get free shipping or faster service, whatever your reason may be, um, might as well use the link from Rendering Unconscious and send 50 cents over to the podcast. Thank you so much. Another notable thing is that if you do like a book that you hear about on Rendering Unconscious or just in general, especially if it's a book from an independent press or an academic press, it really is helpful to the authors and the publishers if you leave a review for it on Amazon or wherever online service you like to use. So keep that in mind. If you have some time someday, leave a few reviews for books that you love and help those authors and publishers out. As usual, there is a video accompanying this episode at our YouTube channel. Just look for Trapar Film at YouTube. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T Film at YouTube. Well, hello, Callum. I'm so happy to have you here on Rendering Unconscious. Hi, Vanessa. Lovely to be here. So where should we begin? Um. Where should we begin? Um, I guess why I'm here, um, which is a very good question. Um, so one reason I'm here, and shamelessly, is to um, 
to plug a book um, because I have recently or fairly recently published this book. But I guess that opens up onto the the wider question of why I might be doing this at all. So really, my my thing, my um, I'm not sure it's an obsession, um, but certainly my thing is to try and make Lacan more accessible. So a lot of what I do has been kind of pushing in that direction. So um, um, the latest bit of that is um, writing a book that was supposed to be, well, the, the original remit I was given by the publishers was to write a book on Lacan for sixth form students. So I don't know if sixth form in UK education means about 18, 19 year olds. Um, so pre-university, um, which seemed a really odd request because you think how many 18, 19 year old sixth form students have ever heard of Lacan or would be inclined to pick up a book on Lacan, but that's what they wanted. So essentially a, a real um, beginner's beginner and entry level text on Lacan. So, um, but for me, this is part of an ongoing um, mission, maybe project mission to, to I, I guess, kind of lift some of the potentially willful obscurity that shrouds Lacan. And I think for many people, there is something, there's a certain jouissance of, on being inside the club and you know being the ones who <clears throat> who know or the ones who suppose themselves to know um and i'm not trying to pretend lacan is easy to grasp and i mean certainly the way lacan writes isn't straightforward but i think part of that is the ideas aren't straightforward but i kind of wanted to believe that that didn't mean they weren't accessible. So I've spent quite a lot of time trying to chip away at that. So um, we're about to publish the fourth volume of the, the Guide to the Cree, which is kind of really part of a similar project is to, to try and take Lacan, make Lacan more accessible. So what we've essentially done there is take the entire Cree and make it into an accessible or a more accessible text um, and the idea with the Acree books is, you know, not that it replaces the Acree, but that it's something that people can sit and read side by side by the Acree. And then, so it's not making Lacan accessible, it's making the Acree itself accessible because you can read the Acree and when you get stuck, and I think everyone, when they're reading the Acree, gets stuck, but there's someone else's commentary you can turn to. So it's designed as a paragraph by paragraph commentary so that you can read it in that parallel fashion. Um, not necessarily text to be read from beginning to end on their own, but to be read in parallel with the original. Whereas the basics book that I've just published is a slightly different thing. That's designed very much to be read on its own. So it's for people who, it's really, it's aimed at people who've not read Lacan rather than people who've read Lacan and um, found it too difficult, too challenging. It's, it's meant to be an invitation into um, the Lacanian world. Um, whether or not it works, I don't know. Well, it sounds wonderful. Um, I don't have that book yet, but I have the the Cree books. 
which I have here. So the one that's coming out is the yellow one. Yeah, so there's a okay, yellow one. Because I saw this on your email and I was like, wait, why don't I have that yellow one? <laughs> the yellow one will be with us in about three weeks. Okay, good. So I will have it soon. And then you all have to come on and we can talk about it. And I still want to do a series where I go, I started the series with Todd McGowan, I think back in like 2019 on signification with the phallus. And I wanted to go piece by piece and interview all of these um, authors that contributed, but it, it was the pandemic and it was really hard to nail people down. Uh, I think everyone was just too stressed out. So maybe now will be a better time to embark on that endeavor. Well, once you have the yellow one, you can reorder them because they actually came out in backwards order. So oh. the yellow one is actually the first, um, the first eight decree. So you can relaunch your, um, your series starting from from the beginning from the overture and then take us right through the decree. Okay, perfect. I love this. <laughs> the overture, the first, the first decree in the book is the commentary was. Myself, Derek, and Stain. So, oh, perfect. Good one to start with. So, you can help me launch this. Yeah. Wonderful. Because we are kindred spirits, and that my mission is also to make psychoanalysis in general more accessible to people, and Litcon in particular. Because um, I think that even though, you know, people say Litcon is so hard to read, and I think the decree is, is much more difficult than the seminars. The seminars, though, I also like. I'm not this type of reader that has to understand every single word that's happening. I just like to read it and get the experience. And I feel like the experience of like reading, especially the seminars, is just kind of like analysis in a way, like puts you in this state where you're like, wait, where are we going? And then you like get to this point where you're like, aha, I see what he's saying. And then you're like back in this muck again. So that's what I really like about him. And I think that's why he resonates so much. And I feel like trying to nail down exactly what's going on at any given point People can do that if they want. That's wonderful for scholars. <laughs> but as a clinician, I feel like for me, it's more about the experience. And I feel like if more people just like relaxed a little and just read it and didn't worry so much about what they don't know or understand, then yeah, people could get a lot more out of it. And I'm sure your basics book would really help people kind of, like you said, whet their appetite or understand the basic concepts before they leap into Lacan himself. Yeah, I mean that's that's the plan. I mean, I agree with you with the seminars. I I think often as you read the seminars, you get the sense that Lacan himself doesn't know where he's going. He's exactly he's he <laughs> kind of wanders around and he gets back to his point or he gets to another point. And yeah, I, I you get the sense that it's like theatre. It's like you know reading Beckett's. Yeah, if you read Beckett's plays, yes, you can read them and you know, I've read lots of Beckett plays and it's very voluble to sit and read them, but really you need to to hear them or you know, you need to go to the theatre and experience them. And I think the same is with Lacan's seminars. They, you know, I don't think anything could repeat the experience of being there in the room with Lacan, smelling his cigars and and listening to him and watching him wander through this discourse and when you sit down to read it you're getting a a secondary experience but they're not they're not written works i know that the english well the, the officially published translations are you know have been worked over by miller but um you know if you read the um, the cormac gallagher translations which is the way i read most of the seminars because they weren't available in english translation um until more recently and there you're getting very raw Lacan and you, as you say you just have to kind of go with that it's it's 
you, you kind of got to read it and let it flow over you and and you know pull things out as you go whereas the acree i think is a different beast i think the acree is so carefully and densely written that that's what makes it much more challenging and in a way much more exciting to read because um you know it, i think it, it's not a mistake that lacan begins the acree with um with a detective story and it's you know He's inviting you to um, to investigate, to interpret, um, and you know to figure out. And the the essays in the Acre are so dense and you know so full of allusions and references. And you know, Lacan doesn't reference very well in the way we kind of think of referencing as academics, but you know it's full of these allusions and connections. We you need to spend a long time. Um, discovering and, and following and and that's what our commentaries do they kind of they do a lot of that work of following these leads and these associations and unpacking things but but they're not definitive in that regard i mean i really would hope nobody picks up our commentaries and thinks okay this is it i have the answer to the agreement yeah, but they're really good <laughs> they're no, really they're, helpful they're, they're, they're brilliant they're really helpful but I think that I want to see them also as an invitation that, you know, look, this can be done and, you know, you can follow that. And and, and we're following that ourselves. We're, we're now launching the, the Ultra Cree, so, you know, the other volume of Lacan's essays. So that will be the next project. Um, so so we have literally invited lots of people to say that we've managed to do this with the Cree, come and join us and we'll do it with the Ultra Cree as well. Amazing. Well, bless you guys. <laughs> More power to you because that is a task. That is a huge task, but I love it. And you have definitely have to come on to talk about it. I, I was in a Lacan like study group, reading group for like about five years in New York. And I think we read one piece for like a year and a half, you know, <laughs> like just like stopping and talking on like every sentence. One piece from our book or from, from the, the Cree? Yeah, no, it's, yeah, I mean, they take a long time to read. And you could see that's why it took us 10 years to do the series, because um, these are not quick commentaries. They take serious dedication for people to um, to unpack them. And they're dense as well. I mean, even our versions are dense because we're limited by publishers' um, restrictions. I mean, we, we initially intended to do the, the Acree of three volumes, but it ended up being four volumes. But even so, it's still very dense because some of the Acree are very, very long. And even the ones that aren't so long are very dense. So they require a lot of unpacking. Exactly. It's great. It's wonderful. And you also do Lacan in Scotland. Yes, which again is is really part of the same agenda of trying to make Lacan accessible. Lacan in Scotland started off as a it started off literally in Scotland. Um, and I think the first Lacan in Scotland we did, and possibly even before we came up with the name Lacan in Scotland, was um, three people and, you know, a speaker in the room with three people in the audience. And we just kept doing it and it grew from there. So before COVID, we were beginning to get audiences of, in excess of 100 people coming along. And given there is no kind of Lacanian tradition 
in Scotland. There, at the time we started doing Lacan in Scotland, Lacan in Scotland, the joke that people would often make is, I am Lacan in Scotland because I was the only Lacanian in Scotland. There, there were no um, practitioners. I'm not an analyst. I'm an academic, but you know, I'm an academic who has focused very much on on Lacan and his works and, and related stuff. And you were in psychoanalysis. I have been in psychoanalysis, yes, um, but not in Scotland. Well, no, I have been in Scotland, but not the Lacanian in Scotland. Um, but yeah, so when I started, it was very much just me and and some interested students. But we just kept going. It was kind of like field of dreams, you know, build it and they will come. And we just kept running these sessions with, you know, three people in the audience, seven people in the audience. And then over a few years, it grew to... I think the last one we did, we had 130 people in the audience. So, wow. um, and these were just people who were interested. You know, they weren't Lacanians. There were some people who had read a bit of Lacan or tried to read a bit of Lacan. Some people who were in you know, practitioners, but not Lacanian practitioners. So people interested in psychodynamic counseling, that kind of thing, or people interested in cultural applications of theory. So people were just, um roll up so it was it was quite an amazing thing to do but then um covid struck and we had to stop um and we just stopped completely um and it was about a year later so i think it was 2020 we decided okay we haven't done anything for a year it doesn't look like um it's going to be possible quite yet because in scotland at that point i think we were allowed to to see other people, but we still had to keep two meters distance and there were all kind of restrictions in place. So holding live events was still a real challenge. So we thought, well, let's, we've got used to this new technology of doing Zoom things. So let's try doing an online session. And we've been doing it every month since. So we do it the last Thursday of every month. We, we have a, a live seminar invited speakers and we keep the format really simple but it's grown enormously um through being online so we now the audience has changed we when we were doing it at edinburgh as i say it was more curious passers-by now we tend to get much more solid um lacanian audience but it's still a really varied often audience and we try and keep it um reasonably accessible in terms of pitch so there's generally quite a few students in the audience um, but also analysts, academics, and hopefully still curious passerbys as well. So, um, so the audience has grown, and we we post things on YouTube as well. So the audience through that grows even further. So we're reaching out, um, hopefully getting to people, and you know we try and cover interesting ideas so that it appeals to people outside the Lacanian world as well. Um, yeah, exactly. You have fun topics. That's how I get people in. I'm like, let's talk about film or magic. And then people are like, okay. And I'm like, and now this is psychoanalysis. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, but that works. I mean, people it are- It works in- really well. <laughs> film, sex, death. I mean, these, these things seem to capture people's imagination. The occult. <laughs> yeah, we haven't done the occult. Much. We need to have you in Lacan and Scotland to, to talk about the occult. Okay. I also have my art book. We can do all sorts of things. I can talk about occult artists. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> Mix it all together. Yeah. No, I'll hold you to that for sure. Okay. <laughs> can make a new book. <laughs>
It'll be fun. No, but I found when you present the ideas without using the jargon, then people get them because people are also living in their psyches, you know? So, so they're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Oh, yeah, I do that. Oh, I see how that works because, yeah, we're all living it. So, Well, that's it. If you can only present it in the jargon, it becomes a closed loop. Um, and at some point, you've, I think, got to ask yourself, okay, what's the value here? Because we're just working within this closed bubble and it doesn't seem to relate to anything else. Um, so I, I, to me, it seems really important to step outside that. My first experience of Lacan was in was as a student myself and I, I joined this class. I was doing a, a master's in critical theory and I joined, everyone else in the class had already been there for a year and I joined, you know, a year into um, a two-year course. And I tried to read a little bit of Lacan, but I hadn't gone there to study Lacan, so I wasn't immersed in, in Lacan. And I sat in this class with people using all these, this Lacanian terminology, and I just, I had no idea what people were talking about. And I soon began to suspect that neither did they, um, that they were just using these um these terms and kind of flinging terms around the room, you know, jouissance and objet PTA. And I, I had no idea what they're all talking about. And I think that kind of was the, the seeds of my desire to, to actually make something accessible out of the economy, you know, to, to write something that people could read and understand without having been um, already immersed in it without having to, you know, first of all, having to learn the language, you know, learn the, learn the application first, and then you see where the language fits in. And I think the language is really important to Lacan. I think he, he's very careful in how he uses language and there are reasons he uses particular terms over other terms. And some of the terms might seem quite confounding. And I think it's precisely there that there is a good reason for using them, but I think sometimes you have to step back from that, at least initially, before you can get into it. Um, and then, you know, it's later you start to appreciate why that particular term is used. But I think when people just use the terms without stepping back from them, then it it, it becomes a kind of an in-group um, jargon, as you say, an in-group vocabulary that's... Um, it kind of, it stops us going underneath and digging down and thinking, well, what does this really mean? I mean, if you take for a really good example from Lacan with the phallus, and Lacan's really clear when he uses the term phallus that he's not talking about um, you know, a piece of flesh, you know, a bit of biology, a, you know, a penis. And yet, why does he choose the word phallus, which obviously connects to that and yeah people never really seem to to question that they just you know people in the Lacanian world just use the term phallus and if you say why why phallus you get all kinds of different answers and it's almost like or no answer at all um and I think you know things like that just kind of stopping and thinking why this first before we start just to use this term repeatedly I think really helps to understand what it is you're trying to say and ultimately you know well, these, you know, these conversations we have, the books we write, the books we read, it's all communication. But if it's not communicating anything, then it's not communication. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I frequently have wondered throughout my psychoanalytic life, like how did psychoanalysis become so inaccessible? And I think this is exactly the problem is not only like people complaining about oh, frequency and, and cost, but you can do sliding scale and alleviate that for people so more people can be seen. Um, but it's also this kind of attitude where like the analysts or the analytic community is actually basically buying their own bullshit or assuming the position of the subject supposed to know. It's like, we're supposed to all know that we're not supposed to assume that position ourselves. <laughs> like we may be put in that position, but we should try to subvert that a bit, you know, step out um, and not, yeah, not be like, yeah, I do know because then we're no different than psychologists that are like, oh yes, let me tell you what to do with your life and give you all this advice so that you can be, or an ego psychologist, you know, you can be a healthy person like me. <laughs> well, e exactly. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there seems to be something very un-Lacanian in that approach. I think if you're going to be a Lacanian practitioner, whether that practice is analysis or or simply writing or speaking or you know, teaching, you know, you, you've got to be Lacanian to be a Lacanian. That's so to me, that means questioning things. That's what Lacan did. You know, Lacan's return to Freud is all about. To me, anyway, it's, it's about the, that Freudian spirit of constantly moving forward and questioning things. And you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about the the complete Freud. And what you see through those books is, you know, Freud constantly pulling apart his own assumptions, his own arguments, and, and rethinking his approach to things. And I think that's what Lacan is really driving at when he has a return to Freud. He's like, let's not. The aim of this is not to come up with a, a solid edifice. The aim of this is to keep moving forward and keep questioning. And you see that through Lacan's work as well. And in the, from the 1940s, 1930s, um, yeah. onward into the 1970s, he's, he's constantly rethinking his ideas, pushing forward, going back, going forward. And, and we need to do that as well. And if we just accept the language of Freud or just accept the language of Lacan and and see it as this um, completed package, then we're losing that spirit. We may be um, true to the letter, but we're not true to the spirit. And I think we need to be true to the spirit as well as the letter. I wholeheartedly agree. Now we also have to talk about coil and hypnosis. <laughs> um, yeah, no, look at from Maybe we should contextualize this for, for everyone else. Um, some weapon, it was some years ago, a few three or four years ago. Um, I I mentioned um, the band Coil, um, and for people who don't know, Coil are an, an electronic band in the. You probably know this better than me, Vanessa. Eighties Coil started, yeah, early yeah, nineteen eighty two. Oh, early eighties. Okay, so yeah, eighty four. Psychic TV. Started in 1982, and then started in 84, something like that. Okay. Early 80s. Um, but they're... My favorite Coil records is a, a record called Horse Rotovator, and um, it's a very, very difficult record to actually get hold of physically. So I say it's my favorite, but I, I listen to it as, on MP3s. And Vanessa... Um, although we've never actually met in reality and never really spoken, I don't think until today, um, very generously sent me a copy of of Horse Rotivator. So we have a um, a long distance um, bond um, 
in coil and, and related music. Exactly. I had two. So I don't need two LPs of the same LP. So I thought I would share because I'm also passionate about sharing music and things like that. And before I was a psychoanalyst, I would be like, oh, you haven't heard of Coil? And I would burn people like CDs, <laughs> tons of MP3s of Coil and be like, here, listen to this, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. What is music if not to be shared? But it was incredibly generous of you. And it's, it's a fantastic record. Good. I'm glad you're enjoying it. And I haven't got to see the hypnosis film yet. It's not available here. I looked it up. It's not available here till March 4th. So I'm waiting to find out. Peter Christopherson, who is in COIL, just for context, was in hypnosis or involved in hypnosis. And I haven't uh, I haven't got to see the film yet, but I love all of Anton Corbin's films. So I'm sure it's epic as usual. Yeah, and it's a fantastic film. I mean, very, I mean, it's very dominated by Pink Floyd rather than, um, rather than Coil and that kind of um, later work, but um, it's a great film. Um, uh, for, again, for the audience who don't know, Hypnosis was the name of the company that designed um, artwork most famously for Pink Floyd, um, Wish You Were Here, and oh, Dark Side of the Moon, I guess, is the, the most famous one. Um, so it's the company that designed the artwork. Um, and one of the members of the, one of the three people um, in Hypnosis went on later to, to form. He was in Throbbing Gristle, wasn't he? Yeah, so. yeah, he was in Throbbing Gristle. That's how he started. And then, so first it was Genesis Peorage and Cozy Fanny Tutti and Coombe. And then they decided to make this kind of music uh, accompaniment to their performance art collective. And so then they had Peter Christopherson. Peter Christopherson joined Coombe actually early on also. And then they made Throbbing Gristle as part of Coom with Chris Carter also. And then they kind of went in that direction and just became this like experimental industrial band, Throbbing Gristle. And then they broke up because romantic relationships didn't work out basically. <laughs> and then they kind of split off and Chris and Cozy became Chris and Cozy. And uh, Peter Christopherson and Genesis became Psychic TV with early members like John Balance. And then again, they had another little fall out split and so then genesis went off with psychic tv and peter christopherson and john balance formed coil and yeah i have a new book out called things happen which is actually a coil song the title comes from a coil song called things happen and in in the book the lyrics of that particular song are by little annie bandas also known as annie anxiety who was in crass and then uh, worked with all sorts of different people in that kind of experimental era. Um, and in the book, you actually read the lyrics to the song so that the beginning of the book has the first line of the song and the last line of the book is the last line of the song because I was so obsessed with that song when I was a teenager. And so when I met, I got to meet little Annie because my husband Carl is friends with Michael Girard from Swans and Swans came through Stockholm. So Carl went and then little Annie was opening for Swans. And my first book, which is a book of cut up poetry had just come out. So Carl gave it to little Annie cause he knew I was like a huge fan. And then they were just like chatting and she had just moved to Miami and didn't know anyone there. Um, cause she's from New York. And then Carl's like, Oh, my wife is from Miami. And then it was in the interim period where I was like, I had left New York, but I couldn't move to Sweden yet. Cause Sweden originally rejected my, 
residency, even though I was married to a Swede. That's a whole other thing. But anyway, there was a period of like a year and a half where I was basically like floating around and didn't really have a place to live. Um, and I was in Miami a lot of the time, like staying with my parents and things. And so Annie had just moved there. And so I was like, okay, so great. I'll just show little Annie around. So I get to like hang out with her. And then one night we got drunk and, and, and I joked to her, I was like, I listen to your music so much, specifically this song, Things Happen. Um, when I was like a teenager, uh, I was like, it's just so funny that you're here. And she's like, maybe that's how I got here. <laughs> It's like, I have no idea why I'm in Miami. Like, maybe you, like, made a little portal and, like, brought me here. <laughs> it's like, maybe, because artists, you know, these magical artists are all like that. Um, but, of course, in reality, her husband retired and they retired in Florida because that's what people do, you know. But it's a fun story. <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, I have a, a rather more mundane, um, crass story myself. I, I used to live in Romania and... I'd heard of Crass. This was in the kind of early 90s. Um, I'd heard of Crass, but I'd never actually heard their music. And in northeast Romania, of all places, I stumbled across this Crass tape. And most of the music that you'd find you could buy there was you know, things like Ace of Bass and you know Europop stuff. And then in amongst all this was this Crass tape. And I had, so I had to buy it. Um, and I took it home and I, I played it. And... It was in, it's quite noisy, dissonant um, music. And my crass tape, I played it a few times and then it disappeared. And I had no idea what happened to this in my own house. It just like disappeared. And um, my girlfriend at the time had you know, claimed to have no idea about what happened to this. So the only conclusion was that this is my girlfriend's story. The cleaner must have taken it. Um, I lived in, I was working at a university there. So I lived in university property. So this cleaner from the university would come once a week and clean the apartment. So the cleaner must have taken it. I had this like, crazy idea, this this cleaner kind of stumbling across this craft tape and think I must have that of you know <laughs> all things in this flat I must steal the, the craft tapes but I suspect that's not what actually happened to my craft tape maybe she it thought was, it was too noisy I think it was she too threw noisy. it out <laughs> that's my craft story I love it. Well, Annie was married to Steve Ignorant from Crass, and that's how she ended up in Crass. She met him in New York, like, just, like, literally, he just, like, walked down the street and was like, oh, who are you, you know? And then they ended up, she ended up moving to England with him, even though she, she was, like, 18 or 19 or something at the time, and ended up living with them for a long time. Um, yeah, so it's fun. Did I, I sent you my book, right? Did I send you this book about all these artists? Because I feel like you would love it. You might be the only analyst that understands it. Yes, you did. You <laughs> okay, did. good. I thought I did, but I wanted to make sure. Yeah, no, you did. There it's, aren't so many. It's very good. I think I wrote an endorsement for it. So. Yes, exactly. Okay, I thought so. Good. Yeah, because I think you're the only one that would that would actually understand what I'm talking about in this book. <laughs> um, I hope not. Um, I, I find it really enjoyable, and I think everyone needs to read it. So. Oh, thank you. Um, I made an error in my judgment, though, because... I put the word scansion in the title and I, I totally wrote this book for people that like Coil and Throbin Gristle and all these kinds of things, not for analysts. Cause I don't think most analysts, maybe now, maybe they'll like more of these things, but the generation ahead of me, not so much. 
Um, but then I put this this word scansion in the title and then it scares them away because they don't know what that is. And to me, I didn't even think about it. I like purposely wrote the whole book without jargon so that it would be accessible in this way that we're talking about. And then, and then I put this jargon term right in the title just to scare everyone off. <laughs> so that's your unconscious at work there, yeah? Yeah, exactly. Because um, also in psychoanalysis, in, in Lacanian psychoanalysis, scansion is like so basic that I didn't even think of it as a jargon word, but it totally is, of course. So, so we need oops. to work to get it out to the true audience. Yeah, we really do. I think it's getting out there more, and maybe my Things Happen book will help also because it's kind of made. It's a cut up novel, like I made it through making cut ups, and the, like William Burroughs style. Like I wrote down all these kind of scenes that I wanted to include in the book and some that I had written down, like when I left Florida in 2007, then in 2008, once I got away from Miami, I kind of, uh, it didn't, it came to me through like hanging out at a bar with people. Like after work, I was working at a student counseling center for my postdoc and then like me- making friends that way. And then, you know, you have a couple beers and start sharing little like life stories. <laughs> and then like other people would be like, wow, that's really fucked up. Or like, oh, wow, that's really wild. And I was like, is it? And I was like, it's just Miami. Miami's just like that. And then I'm like, hmm, are these stories like really out there? <laughs> and then I hear other people's stories. And I'm like, wow, I think my stories are really out there. And so I started writing some of them down just so I would remember. And then I kind of took these old stories that I wrote down and wrote down some new ones. I wrote down some dreams too and things like that. And then I literally just like cut them up and like threw them around the the house and like pasted them back together and then like rewrote the narrative that way. It was a really fun process. So it's kind of like the process I talk about in the book. Okay. I need to look out for that too. Yeah. It just came out literally a week ago. Okay. And it's brand new. It's it's if you want to read about the wild goth underground of the nineties in Miami, <laughs> it's the book for you. Okay, that sounds very interesting to me. Yeah. And it has my coil origin story of how I how I discovered coil in it too. Okay, cool. Fun. I don't know if analysts are allowed to write books like that, but I did. I think more analysts should write books like that. More I analysts should have coil origin stories as well. <laughs> Yeah, I might be the only one. Yeah, you may well. I don't know what my coil origin story is. I have no, I can have no recollection of how I encountered coil. I think it was through horse rotavator. Actually, it, I think I do through a friend at school. I think is how I originally encountered that that album. But for a long time, that was the only coil I knew. I didn't. You know, the rest of coil weren't particularly on my radar. Apart from the cover version of um, Painted Love. Painted Love. Um, that was my first. I think Horse Rotovator is a good introduction. It's a good like intro to Coil album because some of their stuff gets a little like weirder. That's like a pretty, it's got like some like songs that are like real songs and then mixed in with some more experimental stuff. So it's good. But yeah, my first was was uh, the, the Panic Tainted Love split. And then when I heard that Tainted Love song, I was like, what is this? <laughs> like, who who would sing this song this way? But of course, if you listen to the lyrics, like, it's pretty upsetting, you know, <laughs> if you actually, like, hear what he's saying in the lyrics. And then they they paired it with the song Panic. And then they dedicated all, all the funds that they raised from that album, went to AIDS research. <laughs> I was just like, who are these people who, who would do such a thing? That's amazing. I love them. And uh, yeah, it's just like, it's just like with psychoanalysis for me. It's like when you find something that's like 
it opened like my worldview because Miami is very like, you know, Gloria Stefan and like, you know, <laughs> that kind of pop music. And it was just like, not for me. Um, so when I found that, I was like, oh, wait, there are others, you know, I had to like find these others. And now like, yeah, now I'm like friends with all their friends and have met their like ex lovers and all sorts of stuff. It's pretty fun. Yeah, you know, you don't really associate Miami with golf. No, but it did have a good underground golf scene. Thankfully, I mean, it was really a blessing. And I actually am still, there's this uh, club that was like the club that was our home away from home called the Kitchen Club. And I'm still friends with the owner on Facebook, of course. But it's like, I've told him, like one of, one of our friends that was a regular there was killed a couple of years ago and by her boyfriend because domestic violence is terrible and fuck guns. Um, but anyway, through that, I was talking to him a lot more. And uh, and I told him, like, it's so important that people open these spaces, especially for, like, teenagers, because not everyone has a great home life and, like, people need a place to go. And he did, like, a lot of all-ages nights before the club would open officially, like, do punk shows and stuff. There were, like, all-ages shows. And they were, like, you know, they were really a lifeline at that time. So like those kinds of spaces and spaces for queer kids, you know, these kinds of things are really important. Um, yeah. And I just think they're great. And then we also had, you know, Fort Lauderdale, Marilyn Manson was a local band at the time uh, in the early nineties. So like I had one friend who was a couple years older than me that had a car and she always wanted to go see, they were called Marilyn Manson and the spooky kids at the time. <laughs> and she always wanted to go see them and they played for like $2, you know? <laughs> so they were always playing like every weekend and she used to always drive us up to Fort Lauderdale to go see them. And they were really fun. They were like, you know, they had like rainbow striped tights and like, you know, rainbow uh, like ribbons in their hair and braids and like wore like they were much more like Dr. Seuss like kind of costumes <laughs> and things they were like much more like kind of yeah like Dr. Seuss spooky psychedelic <laughs> at that time and they got kind of more like I don't know dark and mainstream when they got popular or whatever but it was fun to have that those kinds of things and there was a good it was good that there was this like we call it tropic goth it's like a tropical goth scene <laughs> Yeah, no, it was big here. The thing here about golf is everybody looked like golfs, but denied being golfs. As um, certainly in the eighties, I was like, no, I was never a golf. But you kind of you know, dressed in black and you know, a hair hair full of hairspray. But I oh, know I'm not a golf. I'm not a golf. So, there, so I think officially there were no goths in Edinburgh, but there were actually hundreds. Yeah, we were. I was definitely a goth. <laughs> I probably still am, but I don't, I never wore so much makeup. Like I never like painted my face white and like did my eyes with like, you know, long things or anything. But my friend Jessica, who was killed, um, I dedicate the book to her and little Annie. She did that, like with the lines around her eyes and everything and like painted like designs and like had her hair done uh, and things. I'm I'm just kind of too lazy for that. I'm like mm, eyeliner, mascara, maybe lipstick. That's it for me. I'm, I've never like put that much into my appearance in that way but I remember also like a friend's boyfriend had a mohawk and like having to sit there for like hours with gel trying to get his mohawk to stand up perfectly <laughs> I was like is this really punk <laughs> like it's taking us like three or four hours to get this guy's mohawk perfect like to go out to the club <laughs> like is that really punk rock <laughs> but I guess and now we know like it is so it's really fashion yeah um I wonder if how many, or at least our younger, your younger audience understand what you're talking about when you talk about hair gel. There's a, 
Uh, fantastic. Do you know, um, you, you must know Nausberg, the Norwegian writer, and I think it's in My Struggle or one of the early books of the, the series. He's talking about hair gel, like walking in the rain and the hair gel running down his face and into his eyes. And it's like an you know, immediate resonance when I'm reading that. But I think younger readers will have no idea. Like, all these things have improved so much, but back in the eighties, hair gel came in day glow colors and um, and you know would go rock solid until you went out to the rain. Which living in Edinburgh, it rains a lot, and then it would all just like bleed down your face and into your eyes. The, the, well, the hardship of being a goth. Yeah, I don't know. Is is goth dead since Hot Topic? I think so. <laughs> I sure a lot. I know a lot of kids and teenagers look like that, but I don't think it's quite the same no. <laughs> when you can buy it at Hot Topic. We like actually had to buy our black lipstick during Halloween because you could not buy black lipstick the rest of the year. So we would like during Halloween, like stock up on the black lipstick, you know. <laughs> We've discovered the, the, the goth psychoanalysis continuum. Yeah, I'm actually, I had my friend uh, Cadmus on the podcast recently, and he's a philosopher, but he's also like very pagan. And he's written a book um, that talks about basically like how to do philosophy, like how it's been impossible to have like more of a pagan worldview because everything is so monotheist in the West that it's like, even if you don't subscribe to any monotheism in particular, you can't really get out of it. You know, it's just like how we think. Um, and so he's like written a book about philosophy and like how to think more like in this like pagan way where everything is kind of multiple and this multiplicity. And I think people would like it because with all like everything that's going on and people being able to be like they, them and have multiple identities within one person and this kind of thing. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. So I actually think my next project will be looking, working towards a pagan psychoanalysis. See how that goes. Yeah. And I mean, that sounds really important. You're absolutely right. It's, you know, I read something fairly recently about statistics in the UK and it was the percentage of people who, um, declare an affinity with religion and it's it's less than half and i think the point in the article is it's the first time it's been less than half so you know religion is really on the demise but we are still structurally we're christians whether we have the belief or not i mean exactly. I, you know, i'm in scotland i was i was brought up you know well i was brought up calvinist basically and you know i'm not I'm not a believer. I'm not, you know, don't consider myself a Christian. But that structure is in me. So the way I think about religious issues and 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 much more than religious issues is is always already Calvinist. And it's it's really hard to unthink that and to to go beyond that. Because even when you you try and step outside that, which you know, I clearly do in my writing, my work, my teaching, but I'm still stepping outside that from that. So it's still there as a foundation. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think if your your friend can think ways of helping us to to actually work from outside that, that's really valuable because we're locked in it otherwise. Yeah. I'll send you a link to his book. I don't know where it is on my shelf, so I can't pull it out like the others. But um, but I'll send you a link because he just his sold out, the first edition sold out, and they just published a new edition. It's good. It's called True to the Earth: Pagan Political Theory. No, it sounds interesting. I don't know much about paganism, so I'd be doubly interested. It's fun. He's great. I love Cadmus. 
Is there anything else you wanted to mention that we didn't get to? Any other events or books or anything happening that you want to um, mention? It depends what when this goes out, but we are we're doing a a launch for the Ikri book, um, so the, the final volume, the yellow volume of the the reading the Ikri book, um, which will be in March, March the fourteenth. It'll be on the Con in Scotland, so it's a you know, virtual event. Perfect. The whole world is invited if Zoom. Okay. So I'll make sure this comes out before then. I can bump you up if I need to. It's my that podcast. <laughs> Yeah, and please come along yourself. It's um, be great to have you there. Okay, that sounds um, so good. It's, we're it's going to try and get um, as many of the contributors to all four books there as well. So Ooh. it's going to be slightly different than your usual look on in Scotland. We're just going to ask people to do short interventions, but we're hoping, I mean, I'd love to get everyone to, um, that's in total, I think about 40 writers. I don't think we'll get everyone, but we'll try and get as many as we can. That's very enticing. I will definitely be there. And so will all of you listening. Yes. <laughs> well, good. It was lovely to chat with you, Callum. It's fantastic to eventually meet you and, and chat. And um, I'll hold you to coming on Lacan in Scotland. We're booked up for the rest of this academic year, but in the fall, we'll get you on. That's perfect because I have, I'm going to New York in May to speak at this conference at Columbia University on Otto Rank. And so I'm talking about Otto Rank and his theories um, of the art and artist. And I'm using this Danish artist that I'm kind of obsessed with, Overtachi. She's like an early trans artist um, who lived in a mental asylum for like 52 years. And yeah, her work is just incredible. I got to, when I went to, actually, I only left Sweden twice last year. And it was to drive to Hamburg to visit little Annie both times. She was playing there and both times. And I was like, well, it's only whatever, seven hour, nine hour drive or something. I'll just drive down. And so I did that. And on the second trip where I went in November, which is actually the day after I finished my book, um, I went to the Overtachi Museum in De- Denmark. And wow, seeing her work in person is like mind-blowingly incredible and she even like painted the bed that she slept in and like she wanted she had all these like murals she wanted to paint in her room because they actually even though she was interned in the psychiatric hospital they allowed her to not be medicated as long as she like wasn't violent and things like that and so as long as and as long as she could make her art she would she wasn't you know so they just let her like make all this art and but she wasn't allowed to paint on the wall so instead she like designed all these murals the way she wanted them and so in the museum they like painted the murals she way she wanted them for in the museum at least which is really what lovely and since she couldn't paint the wall she like started making these big like life-size paper dolls like paper mache dolls and she would like hang them from hooks in the ceiling and so they were like all of her friends that she would like interact with and like who knows what she was doing in her fairy tale world that she created for herself but I just like love it so much it was so great so I'm going to talk about her art through the theories of auto rank which the person invited me because he he read some piece I wrote about art an artist and said like oh your ideas are really similar to Ronk's and now that I'm reading a lot of Ronk I'm like wow they are really similar and he's like really good so yeah so I'll be doing that in May so that'll be like my whole brain is taken up by that till May so the fall for Lacan in Scotland is perfect brilliant we'll see you there all right bye brilliant thanks Vanessa take care you too Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Professor Callum Neal. Be sure to check out his books and his events at Lacan in Scotland and follow them on social media. As always, huge thanks to Carl Abrahamson for providing the intro and outro music for Rendering Unconscious Podcast. For Carl's music, you can visit his indie record label, Highbrow Low Life, at highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. You can find about Carl's books and other resources at carlabrahamson.com, and his publishing company is trapar.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. And now the song, Magic City, from the album of the same name, Magic City, a new release that I did with Sonic Mastermind, Pete Murphy, available at petemurphy.bandcamp.com. You can also find our music at Spotify and other streaming services by searching for our names, Vanessa Sinclair and Pete Murphy. Links to everything can be found in the show notes for this episode. Enjoy. This was the Magic City. In the early 90s, Pablo Escobar was still around, and Miami was the main port for importing cocaine into the United States. Throughout the 70s and 80s, Miami had become not only the drug capital of the United States, but of the world, and the mutiny in Coconut Grove was the central hub for much of Miami's drug trafficking activity. For much of Miami's drug trafficking activity. It was such an unbearable feeling that they all decided it was worth it to go on a mission at 2 a.m. to try to score something to ease the come down. That will always be my favorite venue. Across the street was Peacock Park and Dinner Key. where Jim Morrison was famously arrested on obscenity charges. Miami, twice. At the time, she was living with her boyfriend in a little one-room cottage behind someone's townhouse. Time, 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 time. Unconscious, the desire of the other had been imposed upon her, piercing through the past and into her present consciousness. Time, 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 